see everyone today. Thank you for uh, having grace with all the computer or wire malfunction. Uh, it's great to be here, though. Uh, I praise and love the Lord with all of it. So praise God to that. I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's right. We advanced 1 Peter chapter 4 in our study through this great little epistle by the Apostle Peter. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. And uh, I want to begin by first reading our text all the way through. And uh, then we can go through each of these verses. And we can see how to apply them. So this will work right on. And beloved, this is the reading of God's living and infallible says in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You might have um, noticed by now, Peter in this um, first epistle just keeps bringing us back to Jesus Christ as the example we are to follow. You'll uh, recall back in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And what example did Christ leave us, you ask? Well, Peter continued in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And now we come this morning to verses 1 through 6. And in verse 1, I must point out that there's a therefore. I always got to ask, what's it there for? And this therefore really brings in all that Peter has said of Christ over the last chapter, chapter and a half or so. And what Peter's saying is, in light of who Christ is and what he's done, therefore... Go and live a different kind of a life. Because he has suffered in order to bring us to God. Because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
because you've been immersed in this great ark of safety as you were brought through the judgment as it rained down upon him on the cross, because you've been identified with him in baptism into his death and burial and resurrection, because you are now one with Christ, therefore follow in his steps. And in verse, uh, and in these six verses, Peter now is going to actually give us four perspectives as how we are to arm ourselves um, when righteousness brings on unjust suffering and persecution. This is really four ways that the believers can strengthen resolve as stewards of God's grace. God has been so gracious to us. He has forgiven us by his grace. And so we don't want to trample foot the blood of the cross and have ourselves ensnared in sin for what Christ has done for us. Christ died for you so that you would be free from sin, that you would die to sin and be one with him. And so as we walk into this, this is the heart of Peter. And the first way that Peter says that we're going to do this is with number one, the attitude of Christ. We have to have the attitude of Christ. And this is the same attitude that Christ had in his unjust suffering. So when we're going through unjust suffering and persecution, we always have somebody to look to for our example. And that's not to the world and to see how well they suffer and what they do and how they manage their pain and hurt. But we look to Christ as we follow in his steps. And what better of an example than Christ on the cross. So, let's go into verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The first thing Peter says to these suffering Christians is arm yourselves. And this is really the dominant verb of this entire um, text, these six verses. Arm yourselves. And if you're wondering if Peter's words sound kind of like a military phrase here, yes, you would be correct. The verb here is actually an imperative. It's a command. It means arm yourselves with weapons. Peter's saying, listen, beloved, if you're on the front lines of this battle, as I expect that you are, I command you, you best put on the full armor of God and arm yourselves. Don't go out there on your own. This race we're running isn't some playground. It is a battleground. Peter says in chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Peter says, if you're on the front line of this battle, you better arm yourselves. And I know we got some brothers and maybe even some sisters in here that are saying, Peter, that's no problem. I'm packing all the time. I'm ready to go. Put me in. But that's not what Peter is talking about right here. We should understand what he means by this. What kind of weaponry is at the disposal of these Christians who are suffering in the first century? First of all, we should know Peter and Paul are on the same page of this. For as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, or verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought 
captive and make it obedient to Christ. And that's what Peter's getting at in verse 1. We're in a battle, and we need to arm ourselves with weapons besides our guns that have divine power. We need to know how to do battle the same way that Christ did. And so, when we go back to verse 1, we have that therefore that's reminding us, don't forget how chapter 3 ended. That now the finished work of Christ has been completed. He has defeated sin. He's defeated death. He went and made proclamation of his victories to the spirits in prison. He now sits at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him, to Christ. Therefore, or in light of this, it might be a better translation, or, or since Christ has, has paid our debt through his suffering, you also arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And the same way of thinking is the idea of the same attitude, the same mind, the same purpose as Christ. Why did Christ come? He came to redeem us from our sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to take away our sin. How did he do that? Through death, through unjust suffering. The perfect, sinless Son of God was willing to suffer until death. And when we think scripturally about Christ's willingness to, to die for us and how we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, I can't think of a better place to see that than in Philippians 2. Um, you know these verses by heart, but if you want to uh, turn there, um, Philippians chapter 2, I'm starting in verse 5. Um, and really, if you want to learn about the mind of Christ, you can read the first four verses of chapter 2 of Philippians, which speaks about having uh, humility as in the mind of Christ. But then in verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of the men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Remember, that's written about Jesus in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The prophet was talking about Jesus, the one who had committed no sin. He said, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God who judges justly. And he who deserved to suffer the least suffered the most, as he collectively bore all his people's sins on that cross. And when they arrested Jesus under the cover of night, they held as many as six, I call them mock trials, dragging this perfect, beautiful Christ from one wicked ruler to the next as they produced false witnesses and false testimonies against him. They spit in his face. They pulled out his beard. They took turns beating him, punching him in the face. Pilate soldiers stripped Jesus naked in front of all the guards, put a crown of thorns on his head, and shoved these massive four-inch 
thorns into his brow as creation mocked its creator, dressing him as a king, laughing at him, all bowing down before him, saying, All hail the king of the Jews. Then they took a reed, they put it into his hands, only later to take it out and to strike him over the head with this reed, slapping him in the face, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And for us, Christ stayed silent, fulfilling the prophecy. He didn't start claiming his rights. He could have spoken one word and had the earth open up and swallow them to the place of the dead. He could have said, do you have any idea who I am? I'm God. I created, as the brother just said, everything. Everything. And never mind the fact that he and his disciples were brutally scourged. And then to finish the job off, they crucified our Lord. How is it that we, especially in the U.S., think we deserve any better? You mentioned the word suffering and Christians today. We want to run. When up until not that long ago, this was the reality for many Christians who followed in Jesus' steps. Notice what Paul says of Christ in Philippians 2 again. And of course, for Paul, this, this was his reality also. It says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what kind of mind was that, you ask? It was a mind of total humility. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Verse 3, verse 4, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 7, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. Jesus humbled himself so low that he became essentially of slave status. He became a bondservant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So now that we're reminded exactly how low Jesus humbled himself for us, we can hopefully begin to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking when we experience unjust suffering. Why am I better than Christ? Why do I deserve any better? And, and by the way, Peter isn't writing some new concept to his readers. Jesus taught positively, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then negatively, he said, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we know these verses well, and, and we say yes and amen to them, but I wonder if we don't make some kind of a, a mystical meaning out of taking up your cross. I know we do. Let's, let's not pretend about that. But I know for sure these first century believers, they knew exactly what Jesus meant. He meant if you want to follow me, you need to understand there's a good chance that you're going to end up on one of these. Do you still want to follow me? Are you still willing to follow me? And in Jesus' time, they could have walked up and down any of the roads uh, owned and ruled by the Roman occupation and seen men nailed to crosses up and down either side. Taking up your cross was a very real reality back then, and so was it to Peter's audience, as they're under an even more evil dictator, Nero, who literally are burning Christians alive like human candles 
for confessing Jesus as Lord. So, no matter what persecution or what opposition comes our way, we need to arm ourselves with the same kind of attitude, with the same purpose, with the same mindset as Christ had. And what was Jesus all about? He was all about being faithful to the Father. Being faithful to the Father. No matter what, Christ understood the cross precedes the crown. The people wanted the crown first. Christ understood the Father sent me first to be a lamb. And when I return, it will be the lion from the tribe of Judah. Make no mistake about that. It didn't matter what opposition he faced, whether it was from the religious leaders, from the world at large, or from Satan. He was here to finish the work of the Father, and he was willing to die in that calling. And remember 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. However, if we deny him, he will also deny us. And I believe what 1 Peter 5.10 says, that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Our Heavenly Father is faithful, and he knows best the plans for those whom he's called. For those whom he's justified, he will also glorify. Now, in the rest of 1, Peter gives us the reason for this attitude. Uh, notice what it says. <coughs> for whoever has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, there's actually um, a couple schools of thought, um, and all of them very well could apply to this text. Um, one interpretation of this is, is that you, if you've been born again and you're persecuted for righteousness' sake in the flesh, it has a, a purifying effect on habitual sin. Arm myself with the mind of Christ, and I am here to do the Father's will, and I've experienced unjust suffering, and I'm dying to myself, I'm carrying my cross daily to follow Christ, I'm done yielding habitually to continually ongoing sin. I've committed myself to Christ, I'm done with that old life. I want to live for righteousness sake. That's the mind of Christ, I don't care what the world says, I don't care what the world does, Though none go with me, I still will follow. And so that's what Peter is telling us here, that we are going to be done with, if we're going to be done with this pattern of sinful behavior or a lifestyle that is all wrapped up in, in chains of sinful, sinful behavior, um, we need to, uh, of course, now, we're never going to be perfect. We're, we're never going to be perfect, of course. We will always stumble from time to time. But as a follower of Christ, Sin no longer has dominion on us. That, that's, the, that's the root of it. And that leads us to possibility number two of interpreting this text. Um, last chapter, Peter closed by talking about how baptism now saves you. Remember when we went through all that? And we looked at Romans 6, where Paul uses baptism as an antitype, a picture. How it's like being buried with Christ in death and raised with Christ in newness of life. And so he's just spoken of baptism, and now he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, just a few verses later after 3 through 4, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
So it's the same idea. We aren't literally crucified, but in a way, yes, our old self is gone because of the work of Christ on the cross. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, for example, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so there are many verses that state, though not perfect, I sin no longer. I no longer am enslaved to sin. I've died to sin. Romans 6 verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under of the law, but under grace. And so that can be what Peter is speaking to. And, and then there's possibly possibility number three, which um, John MacArthur holds to, where, where um, Peter says um, in verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. MacArthur seems to think Peter is calling on, on these believers um, to be willing to suffer until death because what's the worst that can happen to you? They're going to kill you and permanently you're free from sin. <laughs> you're free from sin if you're dead. You can't sin any longer. Which, uh, again, does go with the interpretation of Christ dying, so it's possible, but I tend to lean on options one and two, but what do I know? Let's move to point number two. As Peter seeks to encourage these Christians and to strengthen their resolve and persecution as they arm themselves with the will of God. You cannot go wrong when following God's will. Notice verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Did you notice the uh, contrast there? He contrasts living for human passions and living for the will of God. Human passions, the will of God. You're doing one or the other. You're doing one or the other. Either you're living for your sinful human passions or you're living for the will of God. In fact, that's what we see in the fall of Satan five times in Isaiah 14. He doesn't say, your will be done. He says, I will, I will, I will. I will be like the, the most high. Well, what did Jesus say in the garden? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Your will be done. And here we're reminded of what sin done. It violates his what? His will. That's the implication. Peter is simply saying, by way of reminder, when we follow human passions, we're violating the will of God. Now, the Bible is, of course, full of instruction on this matter of obedience. Let me just share um, a couple with you. A familiar one would be in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus gives us uh, a parable of two men building a house on a foundation. One listens and does as Jesus said, the other did not. So in verse 24, Jesus said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What do we see? Simply put, one was obedient, the other wasn't. 
Back in verse 21 of the same chapter, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So in the end, condemnation will come on those who even deceive themselves into believing that they've been obedient to the will of God. But make no mistake about it, you might be able to fool man, but God knows the heart. Another well-known example is in Matthew 28, verses 19, and the Great Commission. We all know uh, the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28. The end of the chapter there, Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then notice, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's how we disciple. That's how we disciple. We teach them the whole counsel of God, namely that man is in disobedience to what God has commanded us. And then, of course, there is uh, Romans 12, verse 2, which you probably remember from Sunday school. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 6, 6, it says that as slaves of Christ, we should be doing the will of God from the heart. Now, beloved, it really doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand how important um, obedience is to God. <laughs> but I, I think Peter's point here is an important reminder um, for us all. In verse 2, for the rest of the time we have to live in the flesh, no longer should we go after these human passions but for the will of God. The point he is making is how can we go on sinning when we understand that it violates the will of God. It's spitting in the face of God. God who has been so gracious to me. God who has been so loving and, and merciful. How can we live for the rest of the time that we have here longing after human desires rather than the will of God? We can't, beloved. We can't. Listen, if you really desire to shun the sin in your life, then consider for a moment what sin has done. It's a good place to start. It was our sin that we were just singing about that killed our Lord Jesus Christ. It was my sin that put him there. All of us have that testimony. He died for your sins. Your sins put him there. He died for sins. I had a hand in killing him. I killed the Christ. It was my sin that killed the Creator. It was my sin that killed the Messiah. It was sin that, that killed countless Christian martyrs of our faith over the last 2,000 years. It was sin that killed all the apostles. Sin that has prevented the church from being all that it should be. So arm yourselves with, number one, the attitude of Christ. Number two, with the will of God. And then number three, arm yourselves through transformation from the past. Through the transformation from the past. And this is the heart of verses 3 through 5. Because we're reminded, really, of the devastating effects sin has already had on our lives. And therefore, should provide your memory with plenty of reason not to return to it. I know what it did in my life before. Why would I return to it now? Notice what it says in verse 3. Very powerful. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the pagans or, or Gentiles want to do. Now let's just stop there for a moment. That word for, which Peter begins his sentence, is actually very important as it supplies for us the reason why we don't live for human passions anymore, but for the will of God. And the answer is because they have lived in sin long enough in the past that it suffices. Why drag it on any longer? They know how destructive sin has been in their past. Why would they continue with it now? It's similar to what Peter said all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, when he said, your futile way of life. Remember that futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers? That empty, selfish, depraved life that you've had enough of? That you beg God to free you from? Now, Peter doesn't stop there. Now he gets a little bit more specific. Notice again in verse 3, he describes their former way of life, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I don't know about you, but when I look at my past now, it's pretty embarrassing. You know, when, when we were younger, you always had the war stories, right? Oh, guess what I did? Uh. I mean, now I just look at it and go, oh, my goodness. There is like nothing to be proud of. Uh, yes, incredibly blessed to have uh, met my wife. Uh, we were both full-blown uh, drug addicts when we came together. Um, so uh, there's, there's grace available. <laughs> grace available. I'm thankful I've been able to raise the children. But if you look close enough to my, my old life, you would have seen a dead man walking. A dead man walking. Many days should have been my last. I mean, everything I did was so destructive. And had I died, I would have gone straight to hell. So, I don't know if that's the same for many of you, but I can check guilty beside all these boxes. Peter lists six words to describe this kind of life. The first word, sensuality, the word is used to describe the spirit which knows no restraint. It refers to uncontrollable indulgences which always seek after earthly pleasures. Second is the word passions. It means to lust after. In this context, it's a, a passionate longing for ungodly desires. Third word, drunkenness, speaks of intoxication. Uh, it can be used in any form of inebriation, not just alcohol, from drugs as well, where it be sober-minded. Right? The fourth word he uses here is orgies, uh, tomas. It's a sexual partner uh, party with many partners. And it's actually used in extra biblical literature referring to a band of drunkards, wildly acting people, staggering and swaying and singing their way through the streets, causing ravage and havoc. And by the way, orgies were usually associated with the worship of false gods and goddesses in ancient times. Number five is drinking parties. I think we've all been to one of those. And then lastly, number six, lawless idolatry. And you know, sexual sins and drunkenness might not have been everyone's greatest struggle in this room, but idolatry, 10 out of 10, okay, have struggled with this. Uh, one of us escapes it. John Calvin said of this verse, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Think about the idols that have occupied the throne of your heart, beloved, and how pitifully disgusting they are when we stop and compare them to the God of unmatched glory. 
who is unequaled in power and who is unparalleled in holiness. Lawless idolatry denotes the worship of idols and it's an abomination to God. All of these sins were, were pretty typical of the, the pagan lifestyle of an unregenerate person and not only in Peter's time but in our time as well. We recognize all these. The, the fallen man just finds new depths of depravity to go into as we've indulged. There's nothing new under the sun. So Peter says, for the time that is past, yeah, it suffices. I'm done with that. And from now on, we do not live this way. Remember the way you once lived. Remember what sin did to you. Remember the shame your, your sensuality and passions and orgies had brought onto you. Remember the embarrassment and destruction of those drinking parties that they created. The stumbling, drunk, and blackouts, doing things I didn't even remember. Doing things in my body that did not honor God. And the endless idolatry that you blasphemed God with. We now walk in newness of life. Newness of life. And as Paul said in Romans 6, we know that the old self was crucified with Christ. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the key word, enslaved to sin. We don't, we're going to stumble, but we don't want to be enslaved to sin. And then notice in uh, verse 4 there, what Peter says with respect to this, no longer being enslaved to sin. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, I don't know about you if you've ever gone through this before, but man, is that ever true? The old crowd that you maybe used to run with, they're shocked when you say, nope, sorry, I don't do that anymore. All right? My life has changed. I live for Christ now. In fact, this verb for surprise means like astonished, right? Shocked. And it actually includes the idea of taking an offense to. They may malign you. They're going to resent you, talk evil about you. Why, you ask? Well, there's lots of reasons why. One reason is your life is like a mirror now, exposing the sin back to them. Are you saying, I, I, that's, I don't do that anymore? <laughs> what? It's, it's not good enough for, for, for you? It's not, what, is it not good enough for me now? It's very easy to take offense to that because it's, it's like a mirror, and that's what the, the law of God does. It's like a mirror exposing that, you know, we're not good people. We're, we're sinful people. But the main reason is because deep inside our darkened, unregenerated hearts hate Christ. We hate his law. We hate his gospel. We don't like hearing about it. Don't like hearing that I'm not a good person, that you're a sinner who desperately needs saving. I don't want to hear about that as a sinner. And then, of course, there's the whole thing with Christ isn't quite inclusive enough today for all of us. There aren't a thousand different ways to heaven. There's only one Lord. Jesus says there's only one way, and that is through me. And that, beloved, is so not inclusive in 2022. In fact, notice the end of verse 4, Peter says, it says, they'll malign you. This word is actually blasphemo in the Greek. It's a blasphemy. It's to curse, to swear, to, to slander, to smear somebody. And that's what these early Christians were up against. They were hated for their faith in Christ. The pagans demanded that you say Caesar's Lord. 
And he said, no, I cannot do that. There is only one Lord in my heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were willing to die on that mountain, and sadly, many, many did. But notice in verse 5 how Peter confronts these believers with, comforts them with this little note here at the end. He says, they may malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. <laughs> that verb they will give account actually means to pay back. There will be a debt that's owed. In fact, the ones who are persecuting God's children are amassing a debt to God that they will spend all of eternity paying back. This verb is actually a bookkeeping term. So imagine that. God's got all of it written down in his books of life. And there's coming a day when that debt is coming due and it's going to get paid. It's going to come due. It's going to come due. So scripture actually describes that payment several places. Matthew 18, for example, we read not too long ago the parable of the unforgiving ser servant. The end of that story describes it. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, there's coming a time when the dead, that is those who are unsaved, both great and small, will stand before the throne and the books will be opened and the dead will be judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. So make no mistake about it, beloved. Those who come against God's people will stand at the great white throne judgment and they will be judged. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. None of them will have a defense. There will be no escape from judgment. They will not just stand before a holy and just God. They'll stand there without the advocate. They'll have no advocate without excuse, and they will be held accountable. In fact, the severity of their judgment is perhaps nowhere more graphically described as in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, this is pretty shocking. It says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Their day will come. Their day will come. So I think what Peter has on his heart is to remind us, don't forget the cost of sin and the destruction it's already caused in the past. Why would you return to that? So we arm ourselves by, by remembering the transformation from our past. And that should help you shun sin. It should help you to be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake joyfully. Finally, Peter has one more really magnificent encouragement to strengthen believers' resolve in the midst of persecution. And that is the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. Notice verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is actually a rather simple but um, profound verse, really. 
Let's just break it down. For this is why the gospel is preached. Simply means because of sin. The saving message of Jesus Christ was preached. Even to those who are dead. Simply means to those who are now dead. They heard the gospel and, and now they died. Not, not, not they were spiritually dead. And I'm sure Peter also has in mind all the brothers and sisters whom, whom have gone through this persecution and have been martyred. Though now they're dead, praise be to God, they received the preaching of the gospel. And then, and though they were judged in the flesh the way people are, and, and that's, that's earthly people judging them versus God's judgment. They were slaughtered. They were judged. They decided to be judge, executioner, jury, and executioner by slaughtering these Christians. They might live in the spirit the way God does. So that simply means those who believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ went through that earthly judgment. They were also buried in the ark of safety who is Christ, so they've been covered from judgment, and they now live forever in the spirit just the way God does. God is spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that the grave has been defeated. He says, we are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, though he may die in the flesh as a man, all those who believe, Peter is saying, will continue to live on in the spirit. And so he encourages his readers with this. Beloved, the gospel has been preached, and those who are now dead in the flesh are alive in Christ. That though they've been judged in the flesh as men literally put to death for their faith in Christ, they will live in the spirit the way God does. And Peter sort of takes us all the way back to where we began last week. It's really a parallel of the end of verse or chapter 3, verse 18. Because Christ also died, having been put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive, how? In the spirit. In the spirit. See the parallel? Yes, Christ died in the flesh for our sins, and persecution killed our Lord, but he did not stay dead, did he? No, he was made alive in the spirit, and so will you, beloved, so will you. They may kill your body, but your spirit will be you will enter into the promise of eternal life with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, beloved, remember, no matter what they do to us, we will always be victorious in Christ. Either way. And isn't that comforting? <coughs> Jesus uh, said as much in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, when he said, Do not fear those who kill a body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Beloved, we all as those who have come to Christ have battled sin. But God's promise to us, sin will have no dominion over you anymore. Since you are not under the law, but under God's grace. And Paul said, we know that our old self has been crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin we can ever really see sin for, for what it truly is, we're going to hate it as God hates it. We're really going to hate sin. To, to see our sin and to see what it did to our, our Christ and our Lord, we're going to hate that. To see how sin has ensnared believers and rendered them fruitless, we're going to hate sin. To see how sin has devastated people's lives and their marriages and their families, to see how sin ultimately 
brings condemnation and judgment to even those whom we love should make us hate sin. One day we will all stand before heaven's judge. Will you be standing there on your own righteousness, crossing your fingers with the hopes that all your good works outweigh your sins? The warning to you and I is that God's scales only operate in two positions, perfect righteousness or nothing at all. Which of those positions will you be standing in before a righteous judge? The truth of scripture is you don't get to heaven by being a good person. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. However, James goes on to say that mercy triumphs over judgment. And praise be to God who is rich in mercy. For all of us, Isaiah says, has become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of our holy God. And it's only when God really truly gives you eyes to see that you can even begin to understand that God is altogether holy and altogether glorious and altogether highly exalted in yourself as nothing but a lowly, broken sinner before him. Only then, by God's grace, does he give you eyes to behold the one who is the Christ, who, who lived that perfectly righteous life, a life you and I sadly could never live. And this Christ, Peter's been telling us, suffered unto death. He suffered unto death. He died for sins, once for all the just, for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. This beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, however, he did not stay dead. God raised him to life, demonstrating for all whom he called that his perfect sacrifice was pleasing to God to redeem his people. Victoriously, he arose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And at the end of all things, God will judge every person either standing on their own or those who stand in Christ alone. The only way we can possess the righteousness acceptable to our holy God is through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. It is when that he comes in and he takes that dead heart of stone out and puts in that heart of flesh. It is a grace through faith. And Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so I ask of you today, have you been convicted of your sin? Do you see the righteousness that is only available in Christ? And do you know the one you will stand in front of at the judgment. Isaiah 53, 5 says of Christ, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. Last week we saw, For Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. May the Spirit of God let you see Christ as your only righteousness, that you would see Christ as your greatest treasure, and that you would see Christ as your living hope. May God give you ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that yearns after the will of God. If you are in need of prayer this morning, you're welcome to come forward, or we would love to pray with you after service. Would you please stand as we praise the Lord singing, praise the King.